Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everyone. This is Rick Thomas with Life Over Coffee. Thank you so much for joining me. One of our supporting members on the private forum asked me a question about building a relationship with someone who is always willing to talk about your problems and they're never willing to open up and be transparent themselves. Well, I shared a few thoughts with our supporting member to help them to think about how to build within a challenging relationship like that. But as I was going through the list of things that I shared, I thought this would be an excellent podcast episode for all of us. And so I want to share with you what I shared with our supporting member. And so this is episode 476. The title of it is 10 Responses to the Friend Who Won't Admit Wrong. And so let me ask the question, do you have a friend who doesn't mind telling you what's wrong with you? but they're never able, willing to admit any of their mistakes, any of their inadequacies, or any of their sins. Now, if you have a relationship like this, I want you to persevere in that relationship, and I trust that these 10 things will help you as you think about building with that individual. Working through and sustaining these kinds of non-reciprocating, inequitable relationships is challenging. Now, what I mean by non-reciprocating is that they are not meeting you at the same level that you want to meet them. They are not willing to be vulnerable or be open or to have deeper conversations about themselves. They are not being transparent. Now, in one sense, that's okay, because what you're going to find with most of your relationships is that they are unidirectional, meaning that you will be pouring into them more than they will be meeting you at that level where they can reciprocate and bring competent care to you. It has to be that way. I mean, I trust that you have a hundred people that are unidirectional or a thousand people that you are pouring yourself into. Uh, That is the purpose of the gospel is to go and make disciples. And so we will always be talking to more people in a unidirectional fashion than having reciprocal relationships. But a, a few of those people that you build with they will be willing to go deeper with you, to be more than just a receptor of what you have to share with them. But they want to meet you at that level and be as open and honest with you as you are with them. That's what I mean by a reciprocating relationship. And you're not going to have that many of them because, quite frankly, uh, they are hard to sustain just because of the time investment that's involved. It is critical that we have one two or three reciprocating friends, but again, most of them won't be because of the time, the investment that it takes to build that relationship. But if you have someone that you're building with and they are not willing to be vulnerable or transparent at all, but worse than that, they're always willing to talk about what's wrong with you. Well, then there's some things that I want to walk you through. I trust that these 10 ways to respond to that person will be helpful. That individual who is unwilling to admit their faults, they're more willing to admit your faults than their own. And so I want to get to those, those 10 things in just a moment. Knowing how to lead these relationships is absolutely vital. There 
there is a high degree of trust that's needed between two people who desire to mature together. And if a person is not admitting what's going on in their life, there are some trust issues. There is something wrong in that relationship. The thing is that there will always be something wrong in fallen relationships because fallenness will trek with us all the days of our lives. And so there must be a willingness to be appropriately vulnerable, open, and trust with each other. Now, I say appropriately because there is an incremental effect in building relationships. When you meet someone, you're not as open and honest and vulnerable because you don't know that person. You are vetting them, examining them, assessing them to see if that person can steward your trust. And that's okay. They're doing the same thing for you. And so you want to create these contexts of grace that will permit each other to be free so that they can reveal their personal struggles. No two people can interact and engage with each other fully without this kind of perspective and agreement. And so relating to each other comes with a risk, which begs a couple of questions. Number one, do you respond in wise and humble and mature ways to the negative news about someone else? Meaning, can you steward their truth? I mean, that's one of the questions that I would want to ask myself. If they're unwilling to be open, if they're unwilling to be vulnerable, to be transparent, Then before I think about them, I want to think about myself. How have I created an environment of grace that is conducive for them to be open and honest with me? If I'm in a counseling situation with someone and they're not being open and honest, I really do have to examine me. Uh, Is there anything that I'm doing that's uh, prohibiting them or inhibiting them or hindering them from being transparent? If you're leading a small group and you're trying to get your friends to be open and honest, but it's not happening, there's many things that you want to think about. I'll give you 10 in just a moment. But the first thing that I want you to think about Are you able to steward their truth? Do they trust you to be able to open up in such a way to give you things about themselves that you previously did not know? And so do you respond in wise, humble, and mature ways to the negative news about someone else? If you don't, they probably will never be transparent with you. And then number two, when you meet with someone to resolve differences, are you more willing to be as open about what is wrong with you as you are willing to learn about the other person's struggle. Now that's the other side of the coin. And so both of those things have to be operative in our lives if we're going to build a reciprocal relationship. One, we have to be able to steward the negative news that they are sharing with you. And so we want to create an environment of grace that is conducive for them to be transparent. And then number two, we want to be open and honest with them also. If we do not do these things, then our relationships will experience limitations in proportion to the amount of truth that we hide or in how we critique others because we're not stewarding their truth well. Mature reciprocal communication happens when both people are more 
self-critical while placing the other person's well-being ahead of each other. Paul said it this way in Philippians chapter 2. You're very familiar, I'm sure, with verses 3 and 4. He said, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And so let me ask a couple of more questions. Are you more of a rival or supporting friend when there is conflict? That's what he was saying in Philippians. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. And so as you think about this relationship, are you more of a rival or a supporting friend? Now here's another question out of that text. Whose interest are you most concerned about in your relationship? The interest of others, which is what we should be, or our own interest, self-serving? All right, so I have experienced many counseling situations wherein in a moment of openness, a spouse begins to share some of their darker struggles. And so here's a context where two people haven't been getting along that great. And in a moment of vulnerability, this person decides that I am going to be transparent. I'm going to be appropriately disclosing to this other person. The person believed that if their relationship prospered, it was necessary to reveal some hidden things appropriately. It was the right thing to do. And as hard as it is to share the truth, especially the negative truth about yourself, it is equally hard to mature, uh, to be mature enough to handle or to steward the truth that is shared. Now, this second problem here, stewarding the truth, is why I warn the person hearing the new truth about someone else, especially in a counseling situation. If you have a husband and a wife and they have been battling for years and there is unforgiveness and there's harboring bitterness and, and God begins to break through in one of the spouses to where they realize that they have been more of a combatant than a, a cooperating, communicating friend. And, and in a moment of clarity, they humble themselves and they want to walk out repentance. And so they're going to share uh, some things about themselves that was previously hidden. Stewarding another person's problems requires maturity. The receiver on the other end of that negative truth must be respectful, must be grace-filled enough to come alongside the vulnerable person for the mutual benefit of the relationship and God's fame. Now, the reason I give this warning about how you receive this truth, because there is a temptation to use the newly learned truths about the other person in an unkind way. For example, in the heat of the moment, the angry person uses the previous vulnerability in an ungodly way I call this grenade launching. Let me illustrate. Shortly after a couple arrives home from counseling, a counseling session, the residual effect of their lousy marriage continues. Instead of the new bad news that was received during the counseling being a breakthrough, it becomes more ammo 
for the immature person in the relationship. And so launching a grenade at your spouse is never right, no matter what they have done to you. The grenade launcher attempts to hold the other person to a higher standard than Christ holds anyone. And I warn the couple when when this happens, and I've done this a few times in counseling, where they have just been battling for years. They came in for counseling for that reason, because they just don't like each other. And one of the spouses breaks down in a moment of vulnerability, and they really want to make things right, but the other person doesn't. And typically, that's what you will find. Two people don't, it, it would be exceptional for two people to repent at the same time. It would be exceptional for two people to have the same gradation of progressive sanctification. There is always inequitableness in a relationship. There is inequitableness in a marriage. One person is willing to repent, the other one is not. One person is more mature than the other person. There will always be these different levels of maturity in relationship. And so in the counseling session, this person reveals something about themselves. They're being vulnerable. They're being honest. They're confessing their sin. And then the knucklehead on the other side of the room uses that to their advantage when they get home. And so I warn them that do not go home and take what has been revealed here and use it as a grenade that you launch across the room in a moment of unresolved conflict or ongoing anger that you have held against your spouse. We are not more righteous than our spouses. We're not more righteous than any person If we have any righteousness, it is because the Lord gave it to us rather than being generated and sustained from our innate godliness. All holiness comes because of God's favor in our lives. Holding someone to a level of righteousness that we we can't even maintain ourselves is wrong. And so rather than penalizing our friends like an opponent in war, we should cooperate with God by trying to help them to overcome what hinders their sanctification. And so the spouse who has heard this new negative news, they need to steward it carefully and be a cooperating friend, not a grenade launcher. And so when you hear negative news about another person, when they reveal something about them, we have three options for consideration. One, we can expect them to be perfect and then level our disappointment at them after they fail. Now, I don't recommend that. That's like a parent yelling at a child, expecting the child to to be something. And of course, the child fails, and then we level our sinful disappointment at them after they fail. It's not only a failure on the child's part, but we have complicated that relationship by our own failure. A second response is we can dismiss their failures as though sin does not matter, which lets them continue in their struggle. Well, that is not an option either. How about door number three? We can encourage them when they reveal their failures, and we can help them change. We can set our friends free by praying for them, encouraging them, motivating them toward change. Rather than launching a grenade across the room, give them a hug. Give them an encouraging word. Lead them with your humility, with your honesty, and with your gospel-empowered hope. 
So as you think about a friend who does not admit wrong, as I go through this list of 10 considerations, I want you to ask yourself, am I willing to set aside my good desire for them so that I can cooperate with the Lord to restore my difficult friend? It isn't sincere to expect the other person to be mature if we're unwilling to be mature or be the mature one in the relationship. Asking someone to be or to do what we're not ready to be or do is not the way of the gospel. And so I have 10 things. I've titled this episode 476, 10 Responses to the Friend Who Won't Admit Wrong. And so now that your heart is adjusted and you're counting them more significant than you and you're willing to be vulnerable and you're not holding them to a level of righteousness and you are not going to launch a grenade when they start admitting wrong, here's 10 things to consider about that friend. Number one is self-righteousness. Some people tend to elevate themselves above others. Now, if you have a friend in your life who is not vulnerable, not doesn't admit stuff, if you have that friend, I'm not saying they're self-righteous. I'm just saying that could be what is going on. And so you want to think about that. In our mastermind program, we teach our students to biblically speculate. To discern would be a good word here. To have peripheral vision, to see what is not readily apparent. We're not talking about judging people, and so it's all tied to our motive. If our motive is to judge and be self-righteous and look down on people, that would be bad. That would be wrong. But if our motive is to count them more significant than ourselves, then we're going to spend time stepping into their story. We're going to spend time thinking about them. We're going to ask God to give us insight into their lives. Help us to see what we see. Help us to see what we cannot see. Help us to hear what we're hearing and help us to hear what's not being said. And so we have to biblically speculate of what might be going on. So I am not saying that the friend who doesn't admit wrong is self-righteous. I am saying that is a possibility. And you have to consider that because if you want to help them, if you want that relationship to grow in reciprocality to where they are uh, uh, confessional and transparent and admitting their mistakes and so forth, then you have to consider all the possibilities, and one of those could be self-righteousness. Number two, self-protection. The person is afraid to admit, admit wrong. Their fear is the heart motive for their external self-righteousness. And so they, they come across self-righteous, and they are self-righteous, but that self-righteousness is motivated by fear. It's the only way that they know to protect themselves is to make themselves appear better than what they really are. And so you could look at the self-righteous person and think of them like Pharisees and be angry at them because they're self-righteous. But then when you begin to learn more about them, think more deeply about them, you say, oh, this is self-protective. This person is afraid, and because they are afraid, they don't know any other recourse but to pretend that they are better than they aren't. It is a self-protective method. And so you have self-righteousness as a possibility, number one. You have self-protection, number two. And then number three, as I've implied, is fear. And so fear leads to self-protection, which leads to self-righteousness. Maybe they are afraid to tell you the truth. Ask yourself if you are a safe person to receive the negative truth from them. I talked about this earlier. They are vetting you. And so let's say that you meet someone and, 
and their experience in life has been when you're transparent, <laughs> the gavels are going to come down and you're going into eternal judgment. And that has been their experience from the moment that they were reared in a, a hostile, angry home with an a angry dad or an angry mom that whenever they uh, admitted that they did wrong, they stole the candy or did some other nefarious thing as a child, and, and the, the dad or the mom just came down on them harshly, well, then they learn, well, <laughs> the, I better not be, I better not tell the truth because this is what happens when you tell the truth. And so you have to ask yourself, if you, if you receive that person, you meet that person, and that's their former manner of life. That is their shaping influence. They're vetting you. They're judging you. They want to know if you are a safe person. And that is an excellent question to ask yourself. As I was saying in a counseling situation, if a person is not being vulnerable, the first question I want to ask is, what about me? Is there something that I am doing? Have I created an environment of grace that's conducive for them to be transparent? Is there something that I said? Is there a demeanor about me that just <laughs> creates this force field to where they just don't feel safe around me? If you're in a small group, you're a small group leader, you want them to be vulnerable, is that a safe place? And so they are afraid. And so number one, they are self-righteous, but not like the Pharisees. As you get deeper into their lives, you see they're self-righteous because number two, they are protecting themselves, self-protective measures. It's a self-reliant measure to find security because number three, they are afraid. Number four, judgment. It's not their experience to be open. Let's say that they come from a punitive religious environment where truth-telling equals harsh responses. They go to a Christian university, and if they be transparent about their fallenness, I struggled, I looked at that, I shouldn't, I did this, and I should not have done that. And when they admit that, they get demerits. Well, if that is the process, well, we're going to train people not to admit stuff. Go back to the parenting uh, construct earlier. If the parent just responds harshly, angrily, against a child who does wrong, well, then they're going to learn. Judgment is going to come down if I am harsh. So number four, maybe they are afraid of judgment. Number five, competition. This other person is competing with you for whatever reason. They want to keep an advantage over you. Some people are like that. Some people use talking as an offensive strategy because as long as they're talking, they're not revealing anything about themselves. And so they always have to be actively communicating because to be quiet or to be a receptor of whatever you want to say to them, they don't want to be in that vulnerable position. And so they use communication as a tactic of not being exposed, talking about hiding in plain sight. The over-communicating person is a competition. They are competing with you. They want to have an advantage over you. Number five. Number six, hidden sin. This would be obvious. The temptation is to cover sin. To cover sin can be so compelling that no matter how open you think the other person should be, this is what David was doing when he kept silent about his sin. And that is our temptation as well. Confess sin to other people. I mean, that is just, 
that that's a that's that's so archaic. It's so Christian. It's so tradition that we don't communicate that way. Uh, there's such a a temptation to want to create a fictional version of ourselves and to keep our real selves hidden. For whatever reasons they are, I've outlined some of those reasons already. Self-righteousness motivated by self-protection, motivated by fear, motivated by harsh judgments from their past. And so it could be that they just want to hide their sin. It could be born out of fear or it could be more nefarious than that. They just don't care, and they have a heart and conscience, and they really don't care what you think. Uh, they're just not going to tell you whatever it is that you would like to know in order to build a relationship with them. They are hiding sin for whatever reason. Number seven, the guilt-shame complex. For example, a child reared by an angry dad will be captivated by shame and guilt. It will motivate them to keep their sins hidden. Remember, all of us came into this world Adamic. What that means is, there's a in part, is that there is a temptation to hide behind fig leaves, to create that fictional narrative of ourselves because we feel this internal guilt, fear, shame complex that is operative in our souls. Shame is just uncomfortable, uh, in, internal awkwardness, not comfortable in my own skin, just feeling inadequate for whatever reason. That is born in all of us. We see it in our children, especially when they're young, as they cling cling to our legs as they're standing at the front door as we're talking to a stranger. They are insecure. They, they feel the fear and the shame, and they want that security. And if they're reared in a home that doesn't create that environment of grace, doesn't create that security because the parent, a parent, both parents are harsh or unkind, authoritative, not encouraging, not motivating by grace, well, that shame, that Adamic shame will, will metastasize. It will morph. It will continue to grow and really just dominate their thought processes and taking their thoughts captive. And then when they enter into a relationship with someone that wants to be open and transparent and vulnerable, it can scare the hooey out of them because it's just not their experience. And so number seven is the guilt-shame complex. Number eight is your maturity. Turning the tables here. A person's lack of self-disclosure is your opportunity to reveal the gospel. If they are not open like this, then you can be Christ to them. Now, in one specific way, I'm thinking about Romans 5, 8, that God loved us while we were sinners. And so let's make a practical application of that. What if we imitated that gospel facet right there and that we love them while they are sinners? And so this could be an opportunity for you if they are not admitting kind of people when they should or could, if they're not appropriately transparent with you when they should or could? Well, what about your maturity? Will you step into that moment and will you love them while they are sinning, assuming that they are? So your maturity, number eight. Number nine, your self-righteousness. Do you map your experience with God over others? It is a form of self-righteousness to expect them to live out Christ the way that you do or the way that we do. Sometimes we can look at people, and I say it this way, this is not, 
I didn't coin this, but I heard this somewhere and I thought it was really good that uh, I expect after 40 years of living and failing and finally getting it right, now I'm expecting you to do that in six weeks. Sometimes we can map our experience over other people and we forget. I mean, I have been a Christian for 40 years, 40 years, four decades. And if you meet someone who's been saved for half a minute and they're not being vulnerable or transparent, I want to make sure that I'm not mapping my experience, my knowledge, my expectation, my training, my whatever, that I'm not mapping it over them and expecting them to uh, meet that level, whatever my level's low, but let's say theirs is lower, and that I'm expecting them to meet my level, whatever that is. That is self-righteousness as I'm looking down on them, mapping my experience over them, and that's where we want to be careful. Again, that's a parental mistake, too, as we expect these little children uh, to be able to get things that are just so uh, natural and intuitive for us. Number eight was your maturity. Will you be Christ to them? Number nine was your self-righteousness. Are you expecting them? Are you looking down on them, mapping your experience over them? And then number 10, excuse me, is your idols. The person who disappoints you reveals your heart's condition. The person who disappoints you is like the heat of the sun bearing down on you. And that heat will do one or two things. It will harden the mud or it will melt the snow. And so a person who is not meeting your expectations is a form of heat in your life. That heat is bearing down on you, and it will reveal one or two things. The hardened mud is pride. The melting snow is humility. And so that person will, will God will use that person, even their sin, but they will use, God will use that individual to help you to grow in humility or to help you become harder and grow in pride. And so with this last one here about revealing your heart condition, your idols, I have two questions. How do I respond when I do not get what I want? How do you respond when you don't get what you want? When that person is not meeting your expectation, whatever that is, how do you respond? Because your response will reveal your heart. And that's question number two. What does your response reveal about your heart? This is episode 476, 10 responses to the friend who will not admit wrong. Let me roll through these quickly. One, self-righteousness. Two, self-protection. Three, fear. Four, judgment. They're afraid of judgment. Five, competition that they, they is competitive, competitive communication. Number six, possibly hidden sin. Number seven, guilt, shame, complex. Number eight, your maturity to be Christ to them. Number nine, uh, your self-righteousness, mapping your experience over them. Number 10, your idols what their lack of transparency reveals about your heart. You can find this at episode 476, 10 Responses to a Friend Who Won't Admit Wrong. The best call to action that I can give you for this is to find a friend to help you mature through any immature relationship that you have. And so if you have a relationship like this, do what our supporting member did. He said, hey, this is a relationship that I have in my life 
the person just never transparent, never vulnerable, never admits wrong, uh, but they are willing to point out what's wrong with me, willing to address my sin. They have a sindar. A, a sindar is always uh, uh, panning uh, the room and is looking for sin in anybody's life. They have a well-honed, well-tuned sindar, and when they find it on me, they zero in on it, and they want to talk about what's wrong with me. And so if you have that relationship, then I would ask you to find a friend, and you're not the gossip. You don't even have to use the other person's name. I don't know who the other person is that my friend's asking me about. I don't need to know and don't care to know. And so you can have a, a specific conversation about a generic friend, but have that with someone who's mature enough to come alongside you, and that would be your call to action here for 476. Ten responses to the friend who will not admit wrong. God bless. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com. 